Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. Heavenly Father, you are the author and creator of all things. We ask that you would sustain us by your word, that we would see our salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would protect us from all evil and all danger especially as we uh, remember those who were killed yesterday in Milwaukee. And we ask that you would send your hand uh, to guide and protect both us and all those whom we love, and that the evil one would have no power over us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, Daniel chapter 3. Before we get too far into it, why don't we actually... Well, let me give you one bit of introduction, and then we'll read it. Uh, So remember, chapter 1 and chapter 2 had to deal with a conflict, if you like. Um, We could just use our our modern terminology, between church and state, all right? A conflict between church and state. So uh, Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hatzael, right? Or as you know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, that they, they have to struggle with this, relationship living in a foreign land, um, being in the court of a foreign king, and yet wanting to be faithful to their God. So the first chapter had to do with the the food, right? And the food laws. The second chapter had to do with this dream um, that the all the court interpreters could not interpret for Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but Daniel was given by God to to both know the dream and then to interpret the dream. And because of that, then they were elevated to positions of authority within um, Babylon, right? So Daniel within the court of the king and then his three friends out in the provinces. And that's kind of where we left off. Um, But we've also talked about maybe one other note that chapters one through six are these anecdotes or these stories and they're loosely related, but they're not, it, it will seem here in chapter three that we're just jumping into another story. And I think it does narratively relate to chapter two Meaning, if we if you didn't have one and two, it would be harder to understand three. Um, but it doesn't give like any time indication, so we don't know like how long has it been and what's happened in between. It's like um, what is it? Like old Buck Rogers TV show, right? I know. I'm trying to use a relevant example for you. Remember Buck Rogers? Okay. You don't even remember Buck Rogers? Okay. No. Okay. Uh, Lassie. Uh, yeah, so did, like you'd watch an episode of Lassie, like you could watch one episode on its own and get it. and you get it, right. Now like TV shows are all these large story arcs and like you can't jump in because you won't know what was happening before. Yeah. Yeah. Serial, yeah, they're called series. Yeah, around. Uh, okay, yeah, I'll just finish that thought. So um, Daniel, it, it's more episodic in that way. It's the same characters and you've come to know them and love them, but, um, but it's another story with them. Uh, Daniel's not mentioned in chapter three, by the way. It's just the three men. Yeah. 
when we read chapter one, mm-hmm. said it was Nebuchadnezzar who uh, took the hostages when Daniel was taken. Yes. And then in chapter two, it says in the second year of his reign, mm-hmm. he had the three. And I thought Daniel was a very young lad when he was. Yeah. What did I suggest? Like maybe 14? And when he came into the court, and then he's... And then he would... That would make him... If you do all the dating, that would have him serving in the court of Cyrus until he was 86. Wow. Yeah, so that he served in in multiple king's courts for 72 years. Yeah. Depending on how you do the math, yeah. Was it Nebuchadnezzar 1 and Nebuchadnezzar 2? I don't... Was there? I don't think there was. I don't think so. Um, but because Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian takes over. Yeah. It's hard to do the dating. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. The Babylonian calendar is different than the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is different than the Julian calendar. The Julian calendar is different than our Gregorian calendar, which is what we have now. So. Yeah, no, he was a young teenager. Right. Um, but, but an intellectual, I mean, he had been trained. Um, he was he was knowledgeable and a brilliant brilliant guy. So that's a good question, Ron. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that some more in a minute. But let's let's actually read our text for today. You know this text well. This is probably the most famous story, probably the second or first most famous story from Daniel. The other one being the the lion's den, right? Yeah. So those two stories. Um, this one is actually read in the church on what day? Anybody know? I know the Adel folks know. When do you hear this story of, of the fiery furnace? Okay, maybe you don't. No, no, no shame. It's fine. It's fine. All right. We will know. You will. I'll get you to it eventually. Yep, we'll get to it. All right, let's read it. Who would like to read? This is, this is a fun one to read, so. Lots of repetition. Uh-huh. Nebuchadnezzar the king Thank made you. an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the traps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with, sympathy with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, 
O King, live forever. You, O King, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in the symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Hmm. I don't know. That's probably a good place to stop for now. Yeah, it, I know. It's so repetitive. Uh, maybe we should talk about that before we get too far along. Uh, why, do you think, why do you think Daniel wrote that way? With the, with the list of the... There's two lists, right? There's the list of the... People. The, rule, the ruling kind of parties, right? So that was... Who are the, who are the groups? Yeah. The satraps administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates. Uh, it's pretty clear. Most Some of these are borrowed words from Persia and from uh, other contexts, but that it's from highest authority to lowest authority. Right? So administrators being the top guys, all the way down to the lowest guys would be the magistrates or some, whatever. I'm using King James. Okay, it's the same one you've got. Um, and then you have the list of all the music, right? So horn, flute, and harp. Those are, those are all um, actual Akkadian or Babylonian instruments. And then lyre, psaltery, and then symphony with all kinds of music, that, that is, those are actual borrowed words from Greece, so they're Greek terms. That symphony of all kinds of music, it's kind of a confusing um, term. If you had the old King James, it wasn't symphony, it was, anybody remember from this reading? Bagpipes. <laughs> used to be bagpipes. Remember that? Okay. Yeah, bagpipes. Um, pretty much everybody's like, no, those aren't bagpipes. Nice idea. Um, actually, there's another word, another musical instrument that sounds like symphony, but it's a percussion instrument. Yes. Timpani. Yeah. So there's actually some pretty, pretty good um, evidence that uh, Dr. Dr. Steinman gives uh, to suggest that maybe, maybe actually it's timpani, you know, because you, because you, the word symphony, Greek timpani is hominid, right? They sound similar. Um, so maybe got a little confused there. Not really sure exactly what instrument that is. So in symphony with all kinds of music, that's fine too. All right. Pipes. pipes. Yeah. Yours says pipes, right? Something where you could do um, multiple tones, right? And timpani could do that, right? You have different pitches, all right? Yeah, so, uh, and they keep repeating those, those, those lists of things. Why, why do you think? Yeah. I think it's because he's trying to make a point how important this was mm. at that time and how important it was to Nebuchadnezzar that everybody better get on this 
get on the bandwagon, do the thing, right? Um, I think there's a little bit more to that too. That's true. Yeah, Dan. They used the horns and trumpets to call people together. Correct. Yeah. So a call together, and specifically here, a call to to, uh, to worship. To worship. The image. Yeah. So so it's a religious thing. Uh, we have kind of you know, as we talk about this, you, you have this conflict between church and state, and the conflict is specifically because they don't have a separation like we do. Um, which is somewhat artificial the way we have it anyway, but that's the side note, which I think we've talked about, um, that the king and then the worship of the king's gods go together. You, you can't distinguish between those. So to actually honor the king, you have to worship his gods. Hmm. Um, and this is still true, or was very much true even into like the medieval period. Like if you were, oh, I don't know, a Roman Catholic and you were in Anglican England, um, it did not go well for you. All right? Some people lost their heads or burned at the stake, yeah. Hmm? That's right. During the time of the Israelites in Egypt, you know, the Pharaoh had, he was a, considered a god mm-hmm. with the Egyptians, and the Jews didn't honor him as a god. Right. Right. Uh, and since we're on that tangent, the... Um, uh, the key there is that both in Egypt and now in Babylon, they don't, and, and we talked about this with Rome, they actually don't have any problem with you worshiping both Nebuchadnezzar and your God. That was cool, right? We call that syncretism. Sin, S-Y-N, not, not as in sins, but rather the same, uh, same time uh, crisis. There's a crisis of faith. You, how can you actually worship different gods, but yet especially in our, in our case, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before my face. Well, how can you worship other gods and still worship the one true God? Um, in, our, in, in our approach, and it also is common to um, Judaism and, and Islam as well, that there can be only one God and you cannot worship another. Yeah. I thought in all the old civilizations they had multiple Right. All of them. It wasn't Well, and here's the problem as you read the Jewish histories in the Old Testament, they're not as monotheistic as you think they are. <laughs> they in most of the most of the Old Testament stories, they still have they still have like their own little pagan altars in their homes or they have you know, the whole golden calf thing is not that surprising. Yeah. yeah. So we think that it's, well, here's the thing. I mean, actually, a, a literal translation of, of the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before my face. So I don't even want to see them. He's not, God is not saying that there aren't other things that are people that you call gods. You have idols, right? It's that you cannot have any idols before him is the difference. Um, so yeah, I love the way the hymn says it. Cast every idol from its throne for you are God and God alone. Um, we sang that last week or two weeks ago. And I can't remember the name of the hymn. Just a line from it. All right. Uh, no, back to this, these lists, okay? Because that's what we were talking about. Um, I think it's actually kind of funny. Like, Daniel's actually mocking the... I'll try to think of a good way to say this. The, the mech... Mechanistic, that's not, that's a big word. Let's try a smaller word. Um, just the way that they, their worship is 
It's artificial. Like you got it because you got to just do it all right and then it's fine, right? So you have to have all the right people in order and you've got to have all the right musical instruments and you got to say all the right things and do all the right things and then, then their false gods will listen and everything will be fine, all right? But it's not actually a personal or direct relationship like it is for Daniel and his, his three friends who actually have, like I say, a direct line of communication Right? Daniel's received visions. They've, they've prayed to the Lord and asked for his blessing and received that blessing, which isn't like any of the false gods of Babylon, who as far as, as we're concerned, and uh, I, as far as uh, the people of Israel are concerned that are in exile, they're dead. They, they actually have no benefit. It's just a hope and a prayer that you build these statues and pray to them. All right? So I, I think it's a little, I mean, I think you're right. Um, there's the everybody's got to be on board part, but then it's also Daniel kind of pointing fun at just the way that their worship is set up. Is it, it's it's just a set of rules and obligations and yeah, Ron. Well, mm-hmm. um, sure. Call. call to worship. Call to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one thing to note, though, is maybe the historic setting. So there is no, there is no indication of time, uh, except there is in the Greek Old Testament, which is what I'm looking, that's why I brought this, where it does include a time marker in his 18th year. All right, so that would be, what, 16 years later? Right, 16 years later. Um, and if you take that indication as, as legitimate, um, there was actually a major revolt that happened in the western provinces in Babylon. And Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had to travel west and kind of get and bring everybody back on board. At the same time, Zedekiah, who he, he had set up as king in Judah, Zedekiah had, had revolted and tried to get, uh, I can't remember these people, I'd have to look them up. Um, well, we could go look it up. It's in Jeremiah 29, maybe. No, Jeremiah 51. So if somebody go to Jeremiah 51, 59. Um, Zedekiah had revolted <laughs> uh, a little bit. He tried to create an uprising. So Nebuchadnezzar had conflict both in the east and the west that he had to go and bring everybody back on board. And so then the suggestion is, is that he set up the statue. Zedekiah himself has to travel to the dedication of this statue. And all the western province guys have to come in and at, for the dedication of the statue as a sign of fealty, if you like, right? To show, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, you're king, and that's the story. Now, that's all conjecture, except those events actually happened, um, and it would give us a good context. Why would Nebuchadnezzar set up this large statue and command uh, worship of this statue, uh, which is to his god, a, one of his gods? It doesn't tell us which one. Um, <coughs> or maybe to him, by virtue of that. Again, to try to bring everybody back on the same page. And yeah, what is, uh, what is, what, what do we read in Jeremiah 51, 59? That's the, I think that's where Zedekiah goes to, to Babylon, right? Verse 59. 51, verse 59, yeah. This is the message Jeremiah gave to the staff officer Zerah, son of Neurah, son of, Mm-hmm. 
when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, king of Judah, there you go. the fourth year of his reign. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon, all that had been recorded concerning Babylon. He said to Sarah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. Then say, O Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it. It will be desolate forever. When you finish reading the scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. Then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster. I will bring upon you and her people will fall. So that's the message that Jeremiah gives to Zedekiah to go. Some of the historic data is kind of hard for us. We have to kind of piece it together. And here, God's prophet in Judah, the command he gives to Zedekiah as he travels to Babylon in his fourth year. This is how you line all this stuff up, you see? Yeah, so we have to kind of fill in some pieces. But regardless of however you want to go about it here, uh, this, that would give a, you know, this cause that there's this rebellion or two rebellions on either end of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that he would have to get people together and he would do it with this big old statue. Uh, that makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to you. Yeah, travels to Babylon. Um, there's also Jeremiah 27 and 28, which has more to do with that. Uh, but that comes later. So in any case. All right, so what else do we want to talk about? <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of things we can talk about which don't have anything to do with the story itself. Um, all right, so we talked about the lists. All the people had to come. He had to get everybody at the dedication of this image that he set up. And how big was it? 90 feet. How tall is 90 cubits? 90 feet. Yeah, so a cubit is this. Forearm. Yeah. All right. 18 inches. Well, it depends how tall you are, right? Because remember, your wingspan is your... Well, in Noah's time in building the ark, it was a foot and a half. Yeah, Noah's time was a foot and a half. Um, you know, probably, what was the average height of an Israelite? Probably five and a half feet. They were short, they're shorter than we are. Um, so that's about, I don't know. It's, it's somewhere between 90 and 100 feet, more than likely. A Babylonian had a link. So that, that's how tall, 100 feet. And this is not unprecedented. There's a, what was the one statue? Well, obviously the Sphinx, you know, in Egypt, right? Which is a lot older. Um, Colossus, that's it, at Rhodes. Yeah, how do you know this stuff? He's so You've been there? Oh, you were there when they built it. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, ancient of days. That's what I'm going to call you now. Uh, <laughs> the Colossus at Rhodes, which was, it was about that big, Whoa. 80 feet or something. The uh, ship sailed between the legs. The ship sailed between the legs. Because one foot was on one island oh, and that's the other right. was on the other oh. over the water. Yeah, yeah so it's pos- and that was metal covered as well, right? So that's, an, that's a good reason to mention this one. Somebody should find it on the like internet or something, put a picture of it. Um, you look up the Ishtar Gate. Ishtar Gate? You find the yep. pictures of the, of the uh, original Nebuchadnezzar's temple is still in ruins. Oh, really? I saw the Ishtar Gate in Germany at the Pergamon Museum. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's blue bricks. They actually found the blue bricks and rebuilt it. And they just had to replace some of the bricks. 
and it's all rebuilt right there. It's just I thought amazing. I heard, I thought I heard that too, that it was transported from that yeah. one to Germany, but I'm not sure if they have it. Looks like there's something in that one. Well, this is probably just part of it, yeah. but it's incredible. Yeah, no, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, that would have been nice. I did not know. I where where is it in Germany? In the Pergamon. Oh, in the Pergamon. Okay, this Targate. Look at that. Oh my goodness, that's that is a big thing. I S H T A R. Yeah. But I mean, look at the artwork on that. Put the keystone oh, up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, 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 this is not a backwards, back, backwoods civilization. Oh, no, no. Yeah, these are these are real, real craftsmen. Real. Yeah, there's a lot of money here. That's the gate to the temple. That's the gate to the temple. Okay, so big, big statue. One of the hypotheses is that, because the grammar isn't terribly clear here, is that the statue was built into the wall of the, of the city. All right, so, um, and then, because the width was how much? What did it say? Uh, how many cubits? Six cubits. So that seems kind of weird because it would be disproportionate, right? Very, very narrow. Um, so the hypothesis is it's this perspective. So... Because oh, unless it's a really fat god, you know, because <laughs> here it would need to be wider to be proportionate. That's the hypothesis, but I don't know if that's true. Uh, but what, it, regardless of that, it's very large and it is gold covered. What? The wall of the temple is thirty feet thick. The wall of the temple is thirty feet thick. Yeah. Uh, now, why an image, by the way? Why? Why images? Uh, why is that a big deal, especially for the Hebrews? What, what's the problem with images? I know this is kind of, well, I mean, it has to do with the first commandment, so. It's a graven image. Yeah, graven images, yeah. It does kind of go to the golden calf, but even predates the golden calf. All right. What was the, what was the, the problem um, that began in the garden with Adam and Eve? Right, sin. But specifically, what was the sin? Yeah. What? Who became the idol in the garden? The tree. Man themselves. Yeah. So remember, they were made in God's image. That's the key. They were made in God's image, and that image was lost or corrupted, depending on how you want to look at it, um, because of sin. Right. So they they damaged. The image, right? That image is actually restored in man by your... How, how did God restore the image in you? Through Jesus, given to you in your baptism. Very good. Yeah, so the image of God is restored. The image of God, no one can look on the face of God and live as long as they're sinners. But forgiven, they can look upon God and live in the face of, of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the image of God. Um, and he, he is our image restored. He's both, if that makes any sense. That's a lot of theology just in about two sentences. Well, we can talk it through sometime. But the point is, is why, why not try to picture God in other ways? And actually, um, 
even very pious Christians don't picture, usually try to draw the father. They only draw the son because you can't see the father apart from the son, which I know. And the Holy Spirit isn't pictured as anything but flame or dove or the triangle. Well, that, that's right. I mean, so the artwork's a little tricky on that because the father wants us to look to the son to know him. It reminds me of a joke I heard. Mm. A little girl was drawing in art class came up and said, what are you drawing? And she said, God. And the teacher said, nobody knows what God looks like. And she said, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, do, so the, the question would be, does, does the three, do these three men, does Daniel, do they need an image to worship God? No. Truthfully? No. Why do they, what do they actually have? What is this what is the object of their worship? Or if you like, what do they look to? Not a statue, but the to the word. That's correct. To the word that God has given, right? Which is unique um, because you don't find that in other religions. They all have, they all have some kind of visionary. Yeah, vision or what? Visionary thing. Like a, like a totem pole, right? A totem or... A, or an icon, or a statue, or, right? And where, where is God worshipped? Wherever his word is. So you'll see this with God's people in the Old Testament too. Anytime God speaks to them, what do they do? They build an altar and say, this is the house of God, Bethel, right? <laughs> and so there's Bethels all over the place. It's like, which Bethel are we talking about? I don't know. Which, you know, was it the one with Jacob, or was it the one with Abraham, you know? So, um, so wherever God's word is, there he is. And we actually don't need, um, we don't need these intermediate objects to approach God, right? He's, he's immediate to us. Uh, and actually, he attaches himself, we talked about baptism, to the water and to bread and wine, so that we actually do have <laughs> an immediate contact with him. And also, even a word spoken is a physical touch, by the way, because as I'm speaking, what am I doing? vibrating the air with my vocal cords, right? And then what happens in your ear? The air vibrates your eardrum, right? And that's transported into electric. It's actually a physical contact. This is is why it's not the same to listen to a recording (laughs) as it is to listen to a real person talking. It's not just because the recording doesn't capture the whole thing, although that's true. It's because this is actual physical contact, right? You know this, social media, it's not the same as like, uh, who is it? Um, Rathke now had her baby. Uh, J- Jackie's uh, granddaughter, grandson. Oh, she did. Yes, this morning, I think. Lindsay. Boy, Lindsay's. Yeah, Lindsay. Um, Roth, right? Okay. Ross. She, yeah, but uh, baby boy. I uh, can't remember the name. You have to look on Facebook. The <laughs> but like you see a picture on Facebook, it's not the same as... Either is email like a letter. <laughs> email or a letter, yeah. It's just, ah, I mean, letters are nice because there's actually, if it's a handwritten letter, you feel yeah. there's, there's still a little bit more intimate contact because somebody had to take the time to use their hand to write it, right? Um, but it's still not the same as somebody. Or here's the baby. I'm like, okay, this is real. So this is why you go in to see your sister, right? Because you can talk to her on the phone, but... Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, is talking on the phone more connected than, like, looking online? I, oh, yes. I don't know. It seems oh, to yes. be. Oh, yeah, yes. I can't get through that. 
I know, it's not the same. Your mouth and your airways. What? There's inflection. Yeah, there's inflection. Yeah, I know, I know. The video of church. It just isn't this. There's just something. There's something not immediate about it, right? Like disconnected. But anyway, that's how their worship is, by the way. The Babylonian worship is it's all disconnected. It has that kind of disconnect. Because there's something. They always are trying, you know, this is with all the pagan worship. It happens in Canaan too. It's like we got to try to get over the, we got to get over the barrier to actually reach Baal, right? Maybe he's sleeping or he's out relieving himself, right? We talked about that. Like you got to get his attention. And then, and then along comes Jesus who says, whatever you ask the father in my name, he will answer. He will. He's always listening. Or he's like the prodigal you know, with the father who's watching on the front porch for his son to come home. He's always there waiting for you and calling you home. So very different kind of approach um, uh, to the God they believe in between the Israelites and these guys. Mm. So that's worth bringing up. Uh, worship of the golden. Okay, so why? Now, in the first two chapters, we talked about this. They, it, they can kind of work with Nebuchadnezzar's demands, Right? Daniel receives the vision from God. He prays. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar makes a pretty hard demand, right? You've got to both know the dream and its interpretation, but God gives that to them and so that they can then live in this cooperative arrangement. In the first chapter, it's just, you know, the compromise is we'll just have vegetables and water. It'll be fine, right? (laughs) So it's kind of a Lenten fast, I suppose, right? But in this chapter, um, Nebuchadnezzar's demand there's no, there's really no compromise that they can make, is there? No, because what is Nebuchadnezzar demanding, very specifically? Yeah, exactly. You worship, you worship my idol, or else. or else. Yeah, and it's really like, like we've already talked about. It's the first commandment that's taking uh, center stage. Now, why do you think? Um, they answered the way we did. They did. We have no need to answer you in regard to these things, for there is a God in the heavens whom we serve, and he is able to save us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hands, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image you've set up. How do they have such confidence? Well, it does take courage. It's more than courage, though. They have faith. Yeah, it's faith, which is a kind of courage, I suppose, but it's a courage founded on promise, on fact. All right? So they have a promise that they're holding fast to, which is what gives them the courage to withstand Nebuchadnezzar. And what's the promise? What's the promise? I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Because they talk about it in chapter 12. Of course, I, I, now I'm, I say that, now I have to actually find it. Ah, chapter 12. Unfortunately, my chapter 12 has all sorts of weird stuff in it. Like Bell and the Dragon, which we haven't talked about yet. There's a promise, I think it's chapter 12, it's right at the end, about, there's the promise of the resurrection. is actually right there. Let's see if you can find it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to look it up. No, no, no. This is the problem when you do it. 12 chapter, verse 2. 
and 3. What is the child, 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2 and 3? What does it say? I'm trying. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. There you go. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Yes. Did I read the next one? Yes. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Yes. All right. You see what's going on there? Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Should have been a good reading for yesterday, right? With ashes and dust, right? And death shall awake. So this is a confession. Um, Daniel gives a confession through his vision here of the resurrection. And it's actually Christ's second coming, isn't it? Because you have this Michael character, the great prince, right? First, the last verse. Yeah. It says, and you will rise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And you will rise to your inheritance at the end of, the, of your days. Look at that in verse 13. Yeah. So you see chapter 12, the end of the book is all about death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. You see that? So, I mean, he's setting us up here for, for the conclusion. And these three young men are like, whatever happens, we're good. You can kill us and the Lord will give us life, right? Whether now or in eternity. Yeah. So... You have, no, you have no power over us, not even over our death. Only the Lord. You get that? Yeah. Uh, I do like the way they said it. Uh, different translations say it differently back in chapter 3, verse 17. So now you've got to get back to it. Uh, I'm trying to do it with the computer here. It takes forever. 17, you've got to type it in. All right, there we go. Uh, how does yours translate that? Verse 17, they say, Okay, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. It's not exactly a literal translation, which is interesting. Um, this one says, For there is a God in the heavens whom we serve. And, but the actual literal translation is, um, There may be a God. Yeah, and this really has bothered Christian translators for a long time. <laughs> because it's like, well, wait a minute. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Azariah, Mishael, and Hatzael, or whatever the names are. What? What? How can you say there may be a God? But that's actually, they're just responding to Nebuchadnezzar on the same terms that he set up. All right, so this is a, this is a sparring match. And they're not, when they, when they, we had this back with uh, chapter one. I can't remember exactly how it went there. But Nebuchadnezzar makes a point and they respond to his point. They don't try to change the subject or deny what he says. So maybe there is a God and we'll see if he saves us. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of like we talked about with uh, Baal and uh, um, Elijah, right? And he's mocking the prophets and said, well, let's see if your, guy wakes, if your God can, if you can wake him up. You know, and here they're saying they would say it's not that they don't believe in the true God, but they're they're saying, yeah, if there's a God in the heavens whom we serve, that's able to save us from He will be able to save us from the burning fiery furnace, he, and He will deliver us from your hands. Or if not, you see, then it makes sense. If or not, uh, let it be known to your king, will not serve your gods anyway, <laughs> or the golden image you set up. So whatever happens, you'll see. All right. 
So we'll just play. It's almost like they're playing a game with him. And I, like I said, I think Daniel's telling the story. It's a little bit of a comedy. I mean, he. Yeah, because the Nebuchadnezzar builds this really impressive idol, and it's a complete waste of time and energy. Okay, because he's not. It's not a. It's not a. There's no God there to actual worship, which is kind of funny. All right. All right, do we want to talk about anything? There'll be other things that'll come up. Why don't we actually keep reading and uh, we'll come back to a few other things. Mr. Nebuchadnezzar's, he's a little ticked now, as they say. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they keep the furnace several times more than it was used to and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Sure, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Mm. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All right. Uh, let's work our way backwards. You notice there's something that happens at the end that sounds familiar. Any tribe, you know, people, tribe, language that blasphemes the God of... How many times are you going to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? No wonder we know these names so well. Yeah. Notice it's the Babylonian names, though. Right? So they keep trying to hold on to like that. Remember, that was the way that the Babylonians tried to not kind of thumb their nose. That's, not, that's a British expression, but whatever. Um, thumb their nose at, uh, at their true, that their Hebrew names, which had L, remember, or Azariah, right? Yah, as in Yahweh. Um, and yet they keep mentioning the names, but does it even matter? All the ways that the Babylonians are trying to overcome the true God. In the, or the, the, their faith in the true God, it doesn't work. Uh, yeah, but what, what was the thing that sounded familiar? They shall be, does yours say cut to pieces? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what he always says. 
It seems like why he always says, yeah, yeah, he likes to utterly destroy people. <laughs> was that back in chapter? Oh, that was what he said would happen to the, like the magicians and sorcerers if they didn't get the dream right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, notice that King Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, it's fine. They can worship their God and actually I'll protect their, the, the worship of their God. Is he saying that there's only one true God? No, no, right? But this is actually the best that we can hope for is that our government allows us to worship the true God. It doesn't, we can't expect the government to deny, deny other people that same privilege. Um, we don't have to like that. I mean, but I think the example from the Bible is anytime the government gets too caught up in protecting your religion at the exclusion of others, it doesn't always go well because who gets to pick then? The king or the queen or whatever. And if the king or queen changes, I mentioned Church of England, you got one queen, she's a Protestant. The next queen comes along, she's a Catholic. So the, so the Protestant's killing the Catholics, then the Catholic queen comes in, she kills the Protestants. There's a lot of people dying all the time because of what they believe. Um, and so the American democracy is, I mean, this is an amazing, which, which amendment is it? Freedom to worship? Freedom of religion? Right, it's the freedom of speech, right? Which comes in first. Yeah, it's in the first. You know, I mean, that's, that's a unique thing, but Nebuchadnezzar does it here. And like I said, the Romans had it to some degree, except they're like, he's still got to, you know, worship of me is still, you know, as king or as Caesar. That's still whole held up there. All right. Uh, let's talk about the burning fiery furnace, huh? Uh, by the way, there's different kinds of furnaces um, in the ancient world, just like we have today. This is not like a bread furnace. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is a, what would, what would you use a furnace? What's another name for a furnace? That gets hot like this, yeah, like a kiln, exactly. An incinerator. Well, it could be an incinerator, but I would, I think it's actually for baking bricks or something like that, right? So a kiln, and you notice that they're loaded in from the, from the top, right? So you put them in from the top, maybe lift them out from the top, or maybe it had a side door where they could come out the side too. This is a large furnace, obviously, because it can fit, and there, there's archaeological evidence of furnaces where you can fit like three or four people in it. Right, so this is not a, not unheard of to have a furnace that big for baking things. Right, so it could be a smelting furnace too. Yeah, so either for for like a kiln for brick or smelting. They had to melt the gold somehow. I don't. How would you make a gold covered statue? I'm assuming it's gold covered and not solid gold at 90 feet, but <laughs> you never know, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, into sheets. Good. Well, when you look at the picture of the ruins mm. and the size of the buildings that they built, they must have made. They had to have large furnace. Millions and millions of, of um, baked. Uh, oh, yeah. Right. Well, think of Egypt. It's the same way. How do you build those pyramids? I mean, they're, are they hewn stone? Most, I think a lot of it is, but we know from, at least from. You know, Exodus, that they were baking bricks for the Egyptians, right? Yeah, I think those are just raw stones, though. Right? Yeah, I think for yeah. the pyramids, it's raw stones. But they were, I mean, that was Israel, that was the slavery that Israelites had to do, the Hebrews had to do in, in Egypt, right, is to bake, bake bricks. So, yeah, that's true. Um, it did say how hot it was, right? How hot was it? Yeah, so that that is... Uh, it's a fine translation, but um, the Hebrew doesn't really back it up. 
is to say it is seven, but it doesn't say seven times. This would be like on your stove. Like when we, I make eggs for Naomi in the morning, I put it at five. So then I would have to turn it to 12, <laughs> right? So it's some increment higher, seven increments higher. But we haven't talked about this a lot yet. It'll come up in the visions later on is numbers are important, okay? So seven being like a number of completion, okay? What? Whole. Whole, yes. So this, yeah, this furnace is as, it, it will destroy them completely. That, I think that's a way maybe we could think of this number seven there as an indication of it's, com- it's completely hot, okay? And in case you didn't catch that, the people who are trying to put the guys in there also die, yeah, so that didn't go so well, which I've, I've never quite figured that out. It bothered me since I was a wee little lad, you know, and hearing this story. It's like, wait a minute, why didn't the three young men die? If the... But in the process of throwing the three guys in the top, the guys who did that also died. Okay, yeah. now I'm looking at verse 26. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted. So that's a different <laughs> opening? How come he didn't get Well, yeah, no. was it the side opening like I talked about or the top? Or the, is there a, like a wall? I don't, yeah. But he's not close enough that he's going to be destroyed. But he's close enough that he can see. Maybe that's a mechanism to open the side. I don't, yeah, I don't even know. It's a, it's a story. Flash fire, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about this with Daniel, that he doesn't, like, give you every little nitpicky detail. He just wants the story to keep moving along. And uh, leaves a lot, he leaves some to your imagination to figure out how this might work. Yeah. They all get loaded from the top. Mm, do they? Yeah. And the uh, liquid wasn't iron. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the iron comes outside. Okay. So it is open on the side, so you'd be able to see in. And doors would open. Yeah, but the doors would melt. I mean, I'm just trying to figure this out. Yeah. Depends on what it's made out of, right? The melting point of the, of the door. Okay. Well, in any case, uh, what was the point? The point was it was so hot that nobody could live through this. And, of course, yeah, so now that, that's an interesting uh, note, isn't it? One, fourth is like the son of God, this translation says. What's your say? Son of the gods. Son of the gods. I like that because it's kind of more indication of Nebuchadnezzar's approach to this. Um, from Hippolytus through to the, to the present day, the universal opinion of the church. So Hippolytus is, is late first century. <laughs> no, late second century, I should say, middle second century. It's like 150. Um, that's the earliest writing we have from a Christian writer saying that that fourth man is, is the pre-incarnate son of God. It's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's been the universal opinion of the Christian church. I could give you the quotes, but I won't read it. Um, even the Reforma- all the Reformation theologians, Luther, um, Gerhard, etc., say that this is Jesus delivering his the three men from from death. Um, now that I, I don't know about you, but in in my background, somehow I don't remember any pastor telling me that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because I was teaching the kids this story, mm. and I said, and it's really cool when the angel, and he goes, "It's not an angel." Hmm. Some translations do translate it as angel. Right, but he told me it wasn't. Well, now, okay, it is an angel, but the angel of the Lord, this is what we call, I'm looking, we call them theophanies. 
All right, both in the Eastern Church and the Western Church, theophany, so theos is the Greek word for God, and phanos is revelation. Like think epiphany is when God is revealed, right? So theophanies are revelations of God, um, and namely the theophanies of Christ in the Old Testament. There's, the Eastern Church is much stronger on this maybe than the West, but we, we've agreed. So think about the three men that visit Abraham, and he has a meal with them, right? Think about... Uh, the, the man who wrestles with Jacob all night, and then Jacob calls him God, right? Um, think about mm, the angel of the Lord that leads uh, Joshua and, and the people of Israel, you know, into battle. And the angel's the one who wins the victory, and then Joshua and the people just come in and get the spoils. I mean, so who's the one who fights for us, the valiant one? Oh, wait, I'm quoting Luther now from the hymn, right? Yeah, Jesus Christ, he is. Right. Uh, Genesis, I mentioned Jacob. That's another big one. And then here in Daniel, you have this one like the son of God. And we've already, or we haven't talked about it yet, but it'll come up in the visions where the ancient of days and then the son of man comes forth. Right. And so that is going to be part of the visions of Daniel is that the son of man character, who Jesus refers to as himself. Daniel has a vision of that, of this um, God in, in Christ, all this angel of the Lord talk. Actually, one of my professors, and I think this is the reason to lead, to answer the question that I asked that I didn't really answer yet, or I implied, uh, why didn't I know about this? Um, because I don't know that it was being taught. I think that's as simple as that. But I, and Pastor Seiflein and I both had um, a New Testament professor, Dr. Gieschen, who did his doctoral work on the subject and wrote the book. It's called Angel Morphic Christology. <laughs> and it's published in Germany and it used to cost like $400 and now I think you can get it for 150 Okay, because it's short run print. But where he does all the work, looks at all the historic study, does all the language work um, and just, uh, you know, the, that there is this, there's the person of Jesus is present from the very creation of the earth all the way through to the last, second coming. He's present throughout all the Old Testament uh, but not obviously as the one born of the Virgin Mary, right? He has not yet taken on human flesh of Mary. That doesn't mean it's not the same person of God, but that he appears in other ways, in the burning bush, for example, or um, in, the, in the pillar of cloud, the fire within the pillar of cloud that led the people through the wilderness. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just wondering if they knew that it was Jesus Christ the Savior, or was it just, it was just, it was just God. God? Yeah, it was just God, right? Uh, this is the, the advantage for, the Christ, for us as Christians um, com- compared to, say, the Jews. Having received Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ of God, and, as, and obviously then as the Son of God, um, we actually read Jesus back into everything that we already know from the Old Testament. You see this with the apostles all through the book of Acts, like the preaching at Pentecost. Well, that story in Joel, that was about Jesus. <laughs> you know, uh, And you're like, oh, okay. Or the, the eunuch with Philip on the road. And the eunuch's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip's like, oh, that's about Jesus. And then the eunuch's like, here's water. I don't want to be baptized. And you're like, wait a minute. You went from Jesus to baptism just by reading the book of Isaiah? But the eunuch did, which is pretty incredible. And also because of the preaching of, of Philip to him. Yeah, so... Um, well, and Elisha also, a lot of the things that he did, mm. his miracles were done exactly by Christ also. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're like prefigurements, right? He kind of shows 
uh, pre-shows the work of Christ and what he will come to do for us in a more limited way, though, right? Mm-hmm. Um, any, any of you like Agatha Christie fans? Yeah, okay. So a great movie that's in the spirit of Agatha Christie was Knives Out. Do you know Knives Out? I haven't seen it. All right, you should. It's out on video now, I think, or it will be this week. Yeah. Um, it's not an Agatha Christie book, but it's in the spirit of it, and it's really funny. And It's got characters that you've, or actors you've typecast as other people playing roles that they've never played before. So it's kind of fun to watch these actors try to do something very different than what they're used to. Um, but with an Agatha Christie novel or mystery, you know, movie or whatever, the, um, there's all of these details that seem immaterial as you're hearing the story. But then when you get to the conclusion, you're, especially if they do like a recap and they show you, mm-hmm. like, oh, you remember that? That's what that was about. Oh, you remember that? Yeah. And then, of course, she loved what we call red herrings. So all those false trails, like to get you thinking that somebody else did it, but it was actually, you know. Uh, and that's hap- that happens with the Bible. It's a beautiful story. It's lovely to read. Read it all the way through, start to finish. I know that might take you a little while. But then go back, and when you reread it, even things that seem like, how could this possibly confess, be about Jesus, like Leviticus, you know, and all the sacrifices and everything. There's a lovely commentary in the same series, you know, as this series, by Dr. Kleinig, John Kleinig, um, on Leviticus. And he, Christ is through and through the whole book. And he shows it wonderfully. So, um, it might seem a little artificial, except Jesus himself says that all scriptures testify of me. <laughs> all right, and we take that really seriously. So we say, well, how was Jesus present, um, you know, in, in the wilderness wandering? How was he present uh, with Jacob? How was he guiding and protecting? And sometimes it's a little behind the scenes. Other times it's very forward. He's out in front and he actually wins the victory. Right? And uh, like I say, that, it, that may be new to you, but from Hippolytus and then... Uh, to, I got to think of the other guy, fourth century guy. Uh, there's lengthy writings where they confess this. And, uh, and, it's, and it's universal, East and West Church. I think it's primarily that since the 19th century, so the age of enlightenment, when we all got so smart and we figured out how we were smarter than the Bible, that we, <laughs> that we decided that, oh no, that can't possibly be true. Because how, can the, how could Jesus appear to people before he's born? He was always God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you, if you take the Bible as Jesus became the son of God, which is what they do, so this guy named Jesus was born and he becomes God's son, then of course there is no son before that. All right, so sorry for the side note, but yes, one like the side of man. Well, that's not a side note. That's an important note. One like the son of man or son of God, right? So, that, so Nebuchadnezzar huh, sees Christ, which is really crazy. But actually... Um, you hear what Nebuchadnezzar says. It's like, this, this God can deliver, this one like a son of God. Son is interesting, right? Yeah, son. That means that he has a father, which is also interesting. Yeah. That he has power over death and over the flames. Now, flames are interesting. You actually have a question about this on the study guide. Hey, let's look at the study guide this week. Um, I know, it's funny. Look at... Uh, Look at question five. What furnace did these godly men fear most? Hell. Yeah, that's right. Sin, you know, the, the condemnation of hell, and the, the destruction on the last day. Which is worse, to die, to die in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace or to die, die eternally, right? Yeah, so fire um, has two purposes in the Bible, just like water. It can purify, it can cleanse, and it can 
destroy. destroy, right? So just in the case of the godly, it destroys what is evil and what is a contrary to God, the fire of judgment, right? That's the preaching of God's law for us now. And then, um, but, it, but it purifies us then too, right? Uh, water's the same way. Think of the flood. <laughs> Lots of destruction, but also Noah and his family, right? Eight souls in all are saved from that, by that same water. All right, so fire uh, has both. Here are the, are the men being judged by the fire? <laughs> no, right? Yeah, they're being saved by the fire, which is crazy. Doesn't make any sense. Um, and the, the bit with the clothes is kind of a fun note, isn't it? I think the kids like that because they have all these weird Babylonian clothes on. <laughs> Do you make them draw that in Sunday school? That'd be funny, mm. right? With their, uh, with their turbans and their... <laughs> Why do they still have their clothes on? Okay, okay, so they still have their clothes on. Of course they have their clothes on. Uh, why, did, why is there all the notes about this? I think probably to show Nebuchadnezzar's fury, right? This is not the first time we've heard of Nebuchadnezzar being mad. Uh, we had him mad back in chapter two, didn't we? Yeah, how mad was he? The king was angry and furious, commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. This guy has a little bit of a short fuse. Yeah. And here, here he's so angry, he just, he just like immediately throws them in. And he throws caution to the wind, which is why the other men die that throw him in, right? He, I mean, that's, this guy is in a, he's in a rage. And of course, fire and rage go together as well, right? So the fires of hell and condemnation are worse than any kind of man-made furnace. Hmm. Uh, and they're here. Oh, um, and two also, and this is a death and resurrection story. They should have died, but they didn't. They were actually preserved in life. And that's indicated not just by their clothes, but that their body has no odor on, upon it, right? And even, not even their hair is singed, right? So this is resurrection language, I would say, right? That, that, they, that death does not touch them. The death, the fire, the fires that would de- seek to, to kill them. Mm. Uh, okay, so maybe in the sake of interest of time, we can look at another question rather than just ignore these. Uh, all right, we talked about that. We talked about that already. Well, we don't. I mean, we, yeah, we can read the question or we can just do it. Uh, look at the six. Look at the sixth question. Note the beautiful statement of the three men in verses sixteen to eighteen, which were, which said, "We have we do have no need to answer you in regard to this thing." We already read that, right? Um, for there is a God in the heavens whom we serve. He's able to save us, right? I mean, what a confession of faith. Yeah, he's able to save it from a burning, fiery furnace heated to 11, you know, as they said in the Spinal Tap. This, you know, amp goes to 11. You don't know Spinal Tap, the movie? This is Spinal Tap? Okay, sorry. Is that a reference to anybody? To what? To Spinal Tap, the movie? This is Spinal Tap? His guitar goes to 11. You know, most guitars only go to 10. Yeah. All right. Never mind. But if not, oh, I know. I'm sorry. You need more time to watch movies, less time to read the Bible. All right. No interest. Okay. That's fine. Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Okay. Is there any situation in your life right now where you could use that statement? Ooh. Is there any statement where you would say, whatever, you can try to kill me or destroy me? but I will not serve your gods. Do you feel like that? 
I mean, have we really had to deal with that? We, I, actually, you were talking about that before class. Have we, have we had like just bold, outright rejection of the Christian faith that we've had to respond to? Seems like it's happening more. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm young, so I don't. I haven't been around that long. But I mean, just think about what do we call it—the clash of worldviews, right? I mean, how quickly the so-called sexual revolution has happened. You think what began in the late or late 50s, really, but popular in the 60s, more popular in the 60s. But even in the last 10 years, you've gone or a little over 10 years now, you've gone from um, no legalized same-sex marriage to having same-sex marriage, you know, nationwide. Just like, I mean, it's like on a turn of turn of a dime, isn't that what we say? You can turn on a dime, um, and not only that, but but they're it looks pretty clear that Utah is going to legalize polygamy. And when polygamy comes, then the next thing is, well, why not polyamory? Mm-hmm. Which is like, you can love whatever you want to love and call it marriage, which by the way, doesn't just include, include people, animals. animals. And you say, well, how quickly can things go? Well, and then what happens, the, the problem is, is what happens if the government says to you, you have to honor that too, even if you are opposed to it because of what you confess what you believe. Now what? Now what do you do? And so far in the U.S., yeah, I mean, you're not going to be sued, I think. Um, but we, we've played it cautiously. We have policies on the books to say, like, for example, you can't be married in our church unless you're a member of the parish. At least one of you have to be a member of the congregation. Why do we do that? Because you can't be a member of the congregation and want to marry somebody of the same sex because that's contrary to our confession of faith. So it's kind of, there's two steps there, <laughs> Right, but what happens if somebody's a member of the parish? They hold to this position, but they've kept it quiet, right? And then they come and they say, "I'm a member and I want to be married." And yeah, I I don't know how great of a legal protection it actually is. And at that point, what do we have to stand up? We must obey God rather than men, right? Which is Acts chapter five, verse. I'm trying to remember twelve, maybe. Sounds familiar, right? Romans 13, this is the conflict in this book, really. Romans 13, Matthew 25, wherever Jesus talks about the state in Matthew, but especially in Romans 13 with St. Paul, is like the government is established by God. And then we run up against the implications of what if the government is opposed to God? Now what do you do? Well, then you have to obey God rather than men. Which is, so the first two chapters... We're going to honor the state. We're going to honor Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to try to work with him, do the best we can, rely upon God's providence to do so, right? To, so that we're fed, even with just vegetables and water. And, you know, you're going, to give me the, you're going to give me this vision. But now when the conflict finally comes down to you have to worship this false god or you're going to die, then that's where, we, that's where they draw the line and say, we can't. Absolutely not. Is there a question about this? So I don't know if we have if we really had to face that the way that we might actually in a relatively short span of time, because at least here in Wisconsin it's narrowly um, been upheld the last two times that I know of that it's gone to the legislature. It's narrowly been upheld that that uh, tax exempt status has been retained in Wisconsin, uh, specifically for housing allowance. Actually, is what it was most recently. Mm-hmm. So we have a housing allowance, which is a tax benefit for for ministers of the gospel. Um, and that was, I mean, it was only like a couple votes shy of, of being revoked in Wisconsin. Uh, 
Well, they're fighting that in Madison. They, yeah, well, yeah, no, it's Madison. But yeah, well, and what would happen? You know, what would happen if we had to pay tax on? Uh, I mentioned this before. The like our church up in like Oconomowoc, right? It's right on the lake, and you know, it's lakefront property. Be high tax, mm-hmm. you know, and now you're having to pay forty, sixty, eighty, hundred thousand dollars in tax every year. Yep. What would that do to a congregation, <laughs> a yeah. small congregation? Yeah. Um, I always. When we talk about stuff like this, I mm. say um, we shouldn't be surprised when things like this happen. Jesus predicted it. Yep. It will be like in the days of Noah. Mm. Yeah, people just giving themselves over to whatever they desire, right? Yeah. I just think we have to expect that it's going to happen. We do want to be true to God. Mm. And we just pray that we have well, God has not left you alone, right. and He's and He's constantly about the work of preparing and you for that day. That's what we see in the chapter today. Yep, yeah, He prepared these men to withstand this assault on their faith. How did He prepare them with His Word, right? And we'd say with His Word in sacrament now for us as Christians, right? Continually forgiving your sin, continually giving you the promise. This is the example of the Old Testament over and over. God's people falter; they fail. And, but what does God not do? Stop promising them, right? Or even giving them intercessors like Moses to say, hey, these people whom you redeemed, you better not destroy them. Because God wanted to, remember? Right after Egypt, and they, they built the calf, and he's, he's like, and we heard this last night in church, he relents of the disaster that he proposes to bring upon us, which means he repents. We say relent because it sounds a little nicer. It's like he changes his mind. And why? For us, for the sake of Christ and his intercession for us, right? Jesus comes to the Father and says, uh, no, I died for these people. And all, all your wrath has been poured out on me. Have mercy on them. That relationship, it's a weird inter-Trinitarian relationship. It sounds odd, but, but this is how the dynamic of law and gospel works even within the Godhead. Yeah, you were gonna say something, Ron? Well, I was just um, gonna comment that just recently I've been reading Mm. And if you read the last 18 or 20 chapters, you get such a sense of a gospel in here. Yeah. Because God is punishing children of Israel because of their idol worship and their falling away. And, and they know it. But still, he says, unless or if they repent, I will change <laughs> Yeah, and if will. Uh, if you were Ash Wednesday last night, you probably weren't paying attention, or yesterday, you probably weren't paying attention to this. I was, because it was on my mind, is that all the language of confession or repentance was, if you look at like Psalm 51, or if you look at uh, Psalm 97, I think was the intro it. You look at Luther's hymn from Depths of Woes, which is based on Psalm 130. You look at those Psalms, that the repentance is a fruit of the mercy of God, of his compassion. So it actually, be, repentance begins with God forgiveness. And we get that backwards. We think repentance starts with our confession of sin. And on the basis of our confession, he forgives us. Not in the Bible. God is forgiving. He is merciful. He's compassionate. And on the basis of that, our hearts are changed. We confess our sins. If we didn't know we were forgiven, we wouldn't confess. I was going to say a damn thing. Well, I just did. Okay, there we go. Right? We wouldn't. 
Because why? Why would we admit our fault unless we knew that God would forgive? And it's through and through those Psalms. It was, and it's really brilliant. Oh, in the intro, it, it's actually a quote from Wisdom of Solomon, which is an apocryphal book. All right, which is kind of a fun side note. Now, uh, I asked a question in the beginning and we better answer the question because you didn't answer it and I didn't answer it, which was, when do we hear this reading? <laughs> you forgot all about it. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, we hear some Daniel in the church here. Um, the two times we hear Daniel, uh, one is on Holy Saturday in the morning, not at the vigil, which is Daniel 6, which we haven't read yet. Uh, Daniel 3 is the Old Testament reading for Easter Tuesday. How many of you go to church on Easter Tuesday? Okay, never mind. So we don't have church on Easter Tuesday, but if we did, we'd hear Daniel. Daniel 7 is on the last Sunday of the church here. That's the one like a son of man, all right? But I asked the question, when do we hear this reading? It's on Easter Tuesday or it's at the Easter Vigil. And not only is Daniel 3 at the Easter Vigil, but the last canticle of the Easter Vigil is, and now you know it. What, what do we sing? Uh, where's my LSB? I just put it down. There's a, there's a canticle that we sing at the Easter Vigil. Uh, sorry, Sherman Center folks. Since you don't have the vigil, you didn't know this, but I'm preaching to the Adel people here. Uh, dun, 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 dun. Yes, it's called uh, All You Works of God Bless the Lord, or here's the other one. This is, this is the version from the Lutheran hymnal, which was, of course, in the German hymnals. It's in the Lutheran hymnal. It's in Lutheran worship. It's in LSB. And it's called Benedicti Omnia Opera. Benedicti Omnia Opera. Anybody remember this? From, it was the first canticle in the Lutheran hymnal, at the front of the hymnal. Nobody remembers it? Uh, well, from the Lutheran hymnal, from this? It's just a chant tone. Right. I'll just read some of it. Uh, all you works of the Lord, bless the Lord. Praise him and magnify him forever. You angels of the Lord, bless the Lord. You heavens, bless the Lord. All you waters above the heavens, bless the Lord. Anybody remember it? It's the last can. It's the thing you sing before the Lord's Supper on it, at the Easter Vigil. It's the song of Azariah, Mishael, and what's his name? Azariah, I get the names. I can't remember the names. The three young men, what are their names? No, 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 not Shadrach, Meshach, and Benedict. That They're Hebrew names, please. Uh, you can't remember. Okay. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Mishael. Uh, now, by the way, so where did it come from? Because you were reading along, and what happened? They, they were bound in the burning, fiery furnace, and then what was the next thing that you heard? The next thing was Nebuchadnezzar heard their singing, right? Is that what yours says? What does yours say? A verse. Uh, would have been from, what's the, verse 23, what's verse 24 say? Which is 23 says they fell down. Okay, then verse 24. He just said, didn't we just throw three guys? All right, all right. Yeah, didn't we just throw three guys? Nebuchadnezzar said that, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, here we go. So, so the Greek goes like this. Ready, ready? They fell bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, but they walked about in the midst of the flame, singing to God and praising the Lord. What? Yeah. Then Azariah stood and prayed thus and opened his mouth in the midst of the fire and said, 
then he has a, then he has a prayer. Blessed are you and praiseworthy. Okay, this is apocryphal, meaning it's not uh, even amongst the Jews. Some thought it should be included, and some didn't. All right. So the, the translators of the Hebrew into Greek, a couple hundred years before Jesus said it should be included. The Hebrew text, which we have, is about a thousand years after Jesus said it shouldn't be included. All right. So here's how it would go. He does this long prayer. It's, this, it's the hymn, or it could be a hymn or a prayer of Azariah. Then here's what happens. Now the king's servants who cast them in did not cease to stoke the furnace with naphtha, pitch, coarse fiber, and brushwood. So they add a little insult to injury, right? Let's throw more stuff in. Yeah. The flame shot 49 cubits above the furnace. That, what is that, like 500 feet? Good night. The, and it broke out and burned those it found around the furnace of the Chaldeans. But the angel of the Lord went down into the furnace to join Azariah and his companions and shook off the fiery flame of the furnace. He made the inside of the furnace to be as though a dew-laden breeze were blowing through it. So the fire did not touch them at all and cause them pain or trouble them. Now, I mean, it's not, it's not universally attested to, but it actually is kind of nice, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Then the three, as if with one mouth, sang, glorified and blessed God in the furnace, saying, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God of our fathers, for you are praiseworthy and exalted beyond measure into the ages. Blessed is your name in the temple of your glory. That's the, that's the hymn. Bless you, bless you, bless you in the winter, in the cold, in the heat, in the sun. In the, he, they say basically you're the, you're the best, best God ever. Um, yeah, it's really, it's a long, it's two pages in here. What are you reading from? Uh, this is from the Greek Old Testament. So it's, this is apocryphal. Yeah. Then, after they finished their song, bless the Lord, the God of gods, all you who worship him, and sing a hymn and give thanks to him for his mercy endures forever. Beautiful, right? Now Nebuchadnezzar heard their singing, and he marveled and rose up with haste and said to the nobles, and now jump back into yours. Yeah. Uh, now, what's interesting about this is that... Um, Amongst Lutherans, uh, we had no problem singing, singing, it was in our, it's been in all of our hymnals, singing that the song of the three young men, which was from the Apocrypha, which, you know, isn't universally attested to. On what basis? I know we've talked about this with Apocrypha before. Maybe we didn't. Yeah, Lutheran. What is the Apocrypha? Those are the. Isn't that those extra books? It is those extra books. It is those extra books. Yeah, there's. Can we borrow one somewhere? Uh, I showed it to you weeks ago. There's actually a companion apocrypha that goes with the Lutheran study Bible, the new version. Okay. I'll, yeah, I can let you borrow. It's fine. It's in my study, though. I didn't bring it. Oh, well. This, uh, this, this is a translation of the Greek Old Testament, and it puts it right in line with the text. So you can hear how it goes. Anyway, we sing the apocryphal text. We actually sang in, for Ash Wednesday, the intro at for Ash Wednesday, the antiphon at the beginning and the end is from Wisdom, which is Wisdom of Solomon, which is an apocryphal text. The uh, Lutheran Church said, we don't take doctrine from the Apocrypha, but, if it, um, but it, it's great for devotion, right? Uh, and so this is a hymn that maybe was composed later, like by maybe, I don't, I don't think this is true, but some would suggest it was composed at the time of the Maccabees, you know, so 50, 100 years before Jesus, and, uh, and that it was added in. Okay, fine. Is it the kind of song that you would sing in response to your delivery from, from a burning fiery furnace by God? Yes. Is it a faithful hymn? Is it like all of our other hymns that we sing in, in, in thanksgiving to God for all of his works and all of his ways that he has saved us? Yes. 
So it, was it in the Bible? Maybe not. Is it still helpful for us to sing? Absolutely. Like our hymns. I mean, our hymns aren't in the Bible. Do we sing them as if they're God's word? Mm-hmm. Actually, we do. Yeah, actually, we do. Right? Because if they don't confess God's word, we wouldn't sing them. <laughs> All right. So uh, Easter Vigil, Daniel chapter 3. Um, also, part of it is read at Easter Tuesday, which you probably don't have church on Easter Tuesday, which is another reason why the vigil is nice, because it pulls in some of those readings that would be on those other days of Easter that we don't celebrate. We're not having a vigil. You're not having a vigil this year. No, because the pastors didn't want to come. Oh, what if we have a vigil? Will you come? <laughs> All right, we'll talk about it. Is that like on... All day, Saturday, Friday or something? No, Saturday night. Saturday night. Wait, it was just Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. Four or five. Or eight. That's on Friday. Wednesday before Monday, Thursday. Yeah, that's fun too. There's all sorts of nice traditions. It's so nice because it's all... All these stories are read by the men from the congregation. Is that how you did it? You had lay, lay, lay people read it? Yeah. 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 It's, that's nice because otherwise I get really tired the, um, before Sunday. It's good to hear all those stories. It, it is. is. The, the Israelites. Right. It's the story of salvation told in one service. Oh, yeah. It's really beautiful. And it goes to baptism and, it goes to this, and you get to Lord's Supper. So you get the whole, it's the whole shoot and match. And then, and what a great way to wake up on Easter Sunday, ready to go. Yeah, so there were a lot of other things I wanted to talk to you about, but I figured we'd talk about what we talked about and then we'd leave it at that. How's that? So um, is that good on chapter three? I think it probably is. All right, so read chapter, can we get through all of chapter four next time? Do the best you can. You're not going to be here next week? Is that right? When are you traveling? Monday. So for a whole week? All right, so we'll miss you, but that's okay. Uh, We'll let you go. We'll let you go. So chapter 4, 1 to 37 is what we'll try to cover next time. All right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have revealed to us the great work of your son, Jesus Christ, in saving um, all people from their sins. We especially thank you that um, you have shown how you can even save us from the fires of hell uh, as you delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo from the burning fiery furnace. Uh, give us confidence that no matter what um, attacks we might experience from this world and from this world's rulers, that uh, you are our God and we will have no other uh, before your face. Give us this uh, faith and confidence through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.